0: Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Uh, Well, welcome again. Uh, My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. I am so excited you're with us, I'm so excited for the fall kickoff. And uh, one other thing uh, about the fall kickoff, we are going to be stepping into a new series this fall that we are calling ground swell. Groundswell, Groundswell. Um, it, it's a word, maybe you've heard it, it's a word that basically means a sudden and rapid spontaneous uh, growth, and it has to do with, with the ocean floor, um, where there's like a seismic shift on the floor, and so the waters swell to it. Uh, And it's a word and the concept that has been on my heart for a while now, where I feel like God wants to swell His presence among us. If you're around next week, like I said, we're we're, we're finishing up our Tables mini-series today, and we're kicking off um, Ground Swell in two weeks on fall kickoff, but if you're around next week for Labor Day weekend, I invite you to come, because I'm basically just gonna share my story over the last year, and share why I believe that as a community, God is inviting us into this next season, what it's going to look like and what He's asking of us. And and, and part of that work is also going to happen today. Like I said, we are going to finish uh, this mini-series on tables on our small groups. We've, we've talked about a couple things. We've talked about the joy that undergirds tables, the joy of, of the grace of God that we see in Jesus' love. We've talked about the sort of the two pillars, the, the two spiritual practices that we want to engage in in tables, which are hospitality, loving the stranger, and celebration. And those aren't just natural things, they are are spiritual disciplines, we have to practice them. And today what we're gonna end with is, for the rest of us who aren't hosting a table, though there is still time to host if you want to, why I would charge you to be a committed member of one, to join one, and commit to it this fall. And not just, not just the table, uh, as I sort of prepared this message, as you're going to hear in our, our Scripture, God's been up to something. Um, there are themes in some of the th- songs we just sang that are in our Scripture. Uh, and there's a group of people in preparation for the fall who have been fasting and praying. And the day, today's date, which uh, I had no coordination with, is on the concept that really we're going to talk about today as well. So I just say that to sort of... Um, Uh, provide framework that, that God is in this space and wants to meet us. So today's message is about why I would charge you to be a committed part of a table and to remain committed, to remain present, to not forsake this space, this community, to not forsake Jesus. Does that sound good? Does that sound good? All right. Join me in prayer, then we're going to read the passage and get going. Lord, repentance is kind of a dirty word. I think back to some of my past experiences where that word was flung at me, where I was made to feel so dirty and guilty, where I was made to feel like a, like a spot, like Lady Macbeth at the spot of blood on her arms that she just can't get off. At its core, repentance means changing our thinking. Metanoia, to change how we think. And we do know as we look at the history of your move, God, as you've moved among the people of Israel, as you've moved among the church, we do know that preceding a groundswell of your spirit, preceding a movement of your presence, there's always deep, deep repentance that grips people's hearts. There's a deep, deep change in their thinking and in their hearts, this realization as they they draw near to you that they are not God, that you are. And there's fear in that because we suddenly feel very fragile and vulnerable. But there's also tremendous hope and joy and freedom that comes on the other side of repentance. And so, Lord, for whoever's in this room, No matter the circumstances of how they feel like they ended up here today. Would they know, would they just sense, even if they can't articulate it, that right now they are in this space because there is an invisible hand behind the universe, behind their very existence that has willed them to be in this space. They are here to hear from you. So would there be an openness to what you have to say to them? In Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. This is what we read. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly, unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. I will rest in your confidence. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. The story goes in 253 AD, the Emperor Valerian of Rome, he issued an edict. I don't know why the powerful always issue edicts, but they do seemingly. I guess they feel like edicts can change things, I don't know. But he issued an edict to put to death all the high-ranking officials of the church at the time. The church was, it had grown a lot over the last 200 years, but it was still a small fledgling group. It, it, had, it had some critical mass, but it, it didn't have um, empire-wide authority or dominance yet. So he, he issued this edict to put to death all the high-ranking officials. story goes that there was a, a man who was like the, the second-in-command of the pope named Lawrence. And Lawrence, as part of his job, is he oversaw the riches of the church. So the prefect of Rome one day, uh, he heard that the church had, had a lot of riches, a lot of gold chalices and, and silver candlesticks. And he wanted to see it. He wanted probably to confiscate it. He knew that Lawrence was on the run for his life, and so uh, he came to Lawrence, he's like, I'd like to see the riches of the church. And Lawrence says, okay, okay, you're right, no one is richer, I don't deny that. The church is the richest people in the world. Give me three days, and then come back and I will give you the riches. And then according to a guy named Prudentius, who was a poet uh, around, uh, is a contemporary of Ambrose in the fourth century, This is what he describes what Lawrence uh, proceeded to do over the next three days. He he essentially, he sold off, he sold off the riches, and he gathered a certain group of people. He gave, he sold off the riches, gave the profits as uh, alms to the poor, and then gathered a certain group of people. And this is what he gathered, this is what he says. The people he collected included a man with two eyeglass sockets, a cripple with a broken knee, a one-legged man a person with one leg shorter than the other, and others with grave infirmities. He writes down their names and lines them up at the entrance of the church. Only then does he seek out the prefect to bring them to the church. When the prefect enters the doors of the church, Lawrence points to the ragged company and says, Behold, the riches of the church. Take them. Enraged at being mocked, The prefect orders Lawrence to be executed by slowly being roasted on a gridiron. Let us consider, says Hebrews, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. You may have heard it, heard different examples of it. Uh, There's an exodus happening from the church right now. Millennials are leaving the faith. Gen Z never even started in the faith. There seems to be a string of high-profile Christians, uh, worship leaders, or pastors who are publicly renouncing via Instagram usually that they are now doubting with Christianity and they're not sure they want to call themselves Christians anymore. Most recently, there was one of the key worship leaders for a very big church, a global church, just recently announced that he's not sure he's a Christian. He's doubting it. Interestingly enough, um, they, they, they find it uh, worthwhile to announce publicly what they're not sure they believe anymore, um, but, but that's for another day. Uh, if, you, if you look online, if you look online, you can find any statistics that all gets at the same idea. America is becoming less Christian. People are leaving the faith. People are doubting. You are doubting. You're wobbly you're not sure what to believe. In 1991, 6% of America identified as none, no religious affiliation. Today, that is 25%, and the rate is trending exponentially. Four out of 10 uh, people between the ages of 18 and 29 say they are no no religious affiliation. Three times more than seniors, 65 plus, and 10% higher than the next age group, between 30 and 49. 59% of millennials who grew up in church have dropped out at some point. People are doubting Christianity at super high rates. You're probably one of them. Now the reasons for this are complicated. Uh, We we always want to look for a simple reason for anything. It's not simple. There's a bunch of different factors and variables that are coming together in this equation. But here are a couple things, uh, the reasons why. Cultural Christianity is a real thing. (laughs) I'm from North Carolina. I know about cultural Christianity where you ask one, hey, what do you believe? Well, I guess I'm a Christian. (laughs) I was born into a family of Christians. We go to church on Sundays, that's what I am. That's fading and good riddance to it. It's failing away. People with each passing generation are not raising their their family to be a cultural Christian because all society is Christian. And so when they're having kids, they're not raising their kids that way. So of course, uh, Christianity is shrinking that way. We're in an age of information, right? Uh, and, and people can make the case, um, uh, social psychologists can make the case, anthropologists, that, that religion in general thrives in homogenous environments. It's a tool of social bonding. It's cultural Christianity. So we have a shared set of beliefs. It helps us uh, make sense and, and to bond and to create cohesion among each other. I remember there was a there's a really uh, interesting episode in Aziz Ansari's Master of None show where he was dealing with religion in it. And his parents, I think were Muslim, um, and they were really worried that he had no religion. And, And his main thing was, you've probably heard it, you maybe even thought about yourselves of, hey, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. That was his thing. He was like, yeah, I don't connect at church or mosque or whatever, but I connect with my friends. And the, the episode ends with this montage, this like slow motion montage of um, uh, 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 Aziz's parents showing up at, at mosque and like high-fiving their friends, and then Aziz showing up at brunch in New York and high-fiving his friends, right? Trying to make the case that they're both doing the same thing. You connect with people, you feel some sense of acceptance. Just to be clear, and and it'll come out later, what we do when we gather here is not primarily about us bonding with one another. That is a byproduct, but that is not the center of why I call myself a follower of Jesus. But we're in the age of information. At the click of a button, we're connected to all sorts of people, able to research, research all sorts of ideas, ideologies, faiths, and the counterpoints for all those things. So, uh, and, and I know this very well, it sort of brings to light a, a guy who's a theologian named Peter Rollins. He talks about a lot of Christians, and he goes, Christians don't believe. They believe in their pastors' belief. You know what I mean? Like, you haven't had to do the hard work of actually thinking through, do I believe this? Instead, I just listen to a guy who's really passionate and gesticulates and pontificates wildly. He must believe it. But now in the age of information, you can't do that anymore. You can research it, you can research counterpoints and counterpoints of counterpoints. In this age of information, we're also aware of other Christians' faith, or we should say lack of faith, how they express what they're really confused by, or for being really honest, their political opinions, which how can they be that and also a follower of Jesus? It doesn't make sense totally not seeing that we are stuck in the algorithm of our own echo chamber being fed exactly what we want to be fed. This age of information is also an age of misinformation, fake news. (laughs) Which if we actually dive into certain statistics instead of just regurgitating them, we realize it's far more complicated. It just takes a lot of work, too much work. We're also experiencing cultural trends around us which makes sense of why people would doubt Christianity, leave the faith. We in the West, for those who've been raised in the West, we're stuck in this web that really values choice, individual choice, self-actualization, and free expression. That's what we value. Those are our virtues. That's the way to the highest good to the most, the maximum amount of of happiness. And with each passing generation, we're achieving what we say we value. We're establishing a system that honors individual choice, individual self-actualization, individual free expression. And potentially, those things maybe aren't the highest values for Jesus. Or maybe they are, but they just need a little redefinition. Some see retreat from organized faith uh, and a maintaining of spirituality. I I, I said that earlier, you hear it all the time. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, which, what does that actually mean? Well, one, it follows suit with our cultural trends of free choice, self-actualization, and free expression. But really what it means when it says, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, is I don't want to attach myself to a community that holds me accountable to what I say I believe. I just wanna believe it when it's convenient for me. I I use God language when it makes sense. I like the points of theology I like, and I just sort of shun the other parts I don't want, right? I would love to have a religion of Russell, seriously. We would eat meat pies, watch soccer, and drink Guinness, like all the time. That's what we would do. Who's in? I'm just kidding, that's how stuff starts. Don't tweet that, anyway. Um, (laughs) But the number one reason, according to Barna, The number one reason why people are leaving the faith, leaving the church, is the church is not relevant to me anymore. That's what's given. Church is not relevant to me anymore. Because we have so much information and misinformation, because we value free expression and free choice, but not intensive inquiry, we actually have to think for ourselves, we actually have to have conversations with others instead of caricaturing them or existing in our echo chambers, and the rest of our society doesn't seem to prioritize such hard conversations and hard thinking that actually like doing things that I don't want to do, but they're part of the story of God because they're leading me to love Him and others better. We actually have to, we have to enter into friction in that way. But the church is not relevant to me anymore. And to that, Hebrews would say, do not give up meeting together. Do not give up meeting together. Let us consider how we may spur one another on. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Do not give up meeting together. The context of the book of Hebrews is an interesting one. We don't know who the author is. We attribute it to Paul, which is basically what you do in biblical studies when you don't know who the author is. You say, ah, Paul probably wrote it. It's written probably, most likely, before the destruction of the Jewish temple based on some of the language around the temple and the sacrificial system. So it's probably written before 70 A.D. It's written to Jews and Gentiles. And it's written to the church at a time where they are experiencing tremendous suffering and persecution. Tremendous. We have instances in uh, the letter, in in the, the book of Hebrews, of some Christians renouncing their faith. Not so different from you and I. So there's persecution and suffering. People are doubting. There's the rise of this thing called Gnosticism, which I won't get into now. But basically, suffice it to say, it's like this Illuminati idea of some really weird ideas and new age spirituality stuff. So truth doesn't seem self-evident. You don't know what or who to believe. People are getting nervous. What's going on? It's a post-truth world. That is to say, emperor is true. Interestingly enough, we're, we're, we're imagining, uh, most scholars think that, the, um, that Hebrews was written to the church after Nero started his uh, crusades against the church. So in 64 AD, Nero rumors, allegedly, um, allegedly, he wanted to extend his palace, and so he burnt down a section of Rome. And then he blamed it on the Christians, because no one liked the Christians. News and fake news, am I right? We don't know what to believe. And so the Christians are being persecuted for this. So we're in this post-truth world, this age of information, where you hear news and everyone has facts and statistics. Only problem is they can't all be right because they seem to contradict each other. We're learning more about human nature, about the spirit and the body. Gnostics are saying some crazy stuff about our brains. So we don't know if we can trust the machinery in ourselves anymore, our own sort of perception of the world. We're learning about social evolution, its role in forming our worldviews. We don't know if we can trust our parents and the community we were raised in. It's a pluralistic environment, Rome is, very multicultural. We can get all sorts of ideas and and, and different types of people. So we're drowning in information. We look to the right and the left. We see self-proclaiming Christians who are either renouncing the faith or they're certainly blind and stupid Gnostics eating up New Age spirituality. And I'm not blind. I can definitely see clearly. We look inside, we see a confused heart, we study history, we see historical trends and forces of power that seem very human, and in all of this confusion, you know who I don't see anymore? Jesus. We don't see Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is saying, with every page, with every chapter, look at Jesus, and don't stop looking. Look at Jesus and don't turn away. Jesus is better than their best ideologies. Jesus is better than their best reasons to renounce the faith and leave. Don't look at the news first. Don't look at other Christians first. Look at Jesus. And the author of Hebrews uh, retraces some of the ideologies of their day. So he opens it with this section about the angels, which probably means nothing to you and I. It was a really big deal for them. So he's saying, Jesus is higher than the angels, here's why. And then he turns to Moses, who's like the prophet of Israel, the highest prophet of Israel. And he says, Jesus is better than Moses, here's why. He turns to the high priest, he says, Jesus is the true high priest, here's why. Jesus is the true king, he's the best king Here's why. Jesus is the most truthful prophet. Here's why. Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of the Jewish people that we've had for thousands of years. Here's how. The people are so confused. Their faith is shaking. And the author is saying, quit it. Just quit it. Take a deep breath. Look at Jesus and don't stop looking. That's where your answer will lie. Put your faith in Jesus, and don't stop. Get obsessed with his story again. Read it over and over, recite it, what he did and who he is over and over. And we ask that question, who is Jesus? What do we see when we look at him? And in our passage today, we've got this really interesting and kind of weird poetic description. We read, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. In this section of the letter, the author is comparing Jesus to the sacrificial process, whereby for thousands of years, Jewish people, Israelites, they would bring their sacrifices to the high priest, and the high priest would offer them in the most holy place once a year and when the high priest offered their sacrifice once a year all the sins of the people all their wrongdoing and their wrong thinking was forgiven like that like that all their sins and i know we're all familiar with their sins so we probably don't need to rehearse them right we're we familiar with their sins you know you know israel's sins right the, the, their sins uh, where, where an Israelite would curse another Israelite because they cannot believe that they would vote for that candidate. You know what I'm talking about. Where they curse the Israelite and they just look at them and they say, you are so selfish and entitled and privileged. How can you not see how privileged you are? That, the heart that cursed, forgiven. Forgiven. You know, the, the, their mouths that lie pretty much all the time. <laughs> To everyone. To their closest friends. They sort of evade the truth. They, they say what they need to say that makes them come out the best, that protects themselves. And definitely in text messages, right? Come on. Where they say, hey, you want to go out, and then you do not want to go out. So instead, the Israelite just sends a text back saying, oh, I'm making some excuse up. All those mouths that lie, forgiven in that moment. You know their hands, the, the hands of the Israelites that, that cheat the system. And cheat the system here, fudge a number there, decry injustice in this area, but totally fail to see how they're perpetuating injustice in these other ten areas, get really angry, and then go home and eat overpriced, seamless, and binge Netflix. And sit there and feel pretty damn smug about themselves. You know that, right? Forgiven. Forgiven. You know their eyes, the Israelite eyes that look at porn or have some sort of addiction, or maybe it's not porn, but maybe it's Instagram. And they look at Instagram, and they are so deeply envious of everyone else. Oh my gosh. They try not to be, but they're so, they just, so deeply envious. This person gets to travel so much, and look at their body, and look at that special someone they have on their arm, and look how perfect their kids are, and how that person got a lucky break in their career that they did not deserve. Everyone agrees with me. They did not deserve it. You know the pride, the envy, the lust that is so sure that they are a better and more worthy Israelite than these other faithless, entitled, privileged Israelites. All that, you know that, right? Forgiven. Forgiven. Just like that. Forgiven. You know the sins of these Israelites that have so much. They have so much they have it so good, and they just walk around their worlds with absolutely zero amounts of gratitude. None. None. They have breath. They have limbs. They have friends. They have food on the table, a roof over their heads. They don't have to know what Lawrence's riches are. They have it so good. And what's worse, you know, the worst part is these Israelites, they know they have it good. They know they lack perspective. And they're going to wake up in a week, they're going to try to do it better, but they're going to wake up in a week and they're still going to feel so ungrateful. Even in that, forgiven. They can wake up as ungrateful as they want, as many times as they want, and they are still forgiven. All these sins are washed away. Therefore, we have confidence to enter the most holy place." You know, no one enters the most holy place in the Israelite system, only the high priest. And yet the author is saying, the interesting thing about this passage, the author is saying, Jesus is the sacrifice and Jesus is the high priest. He's the better sacrifice. He's the best high priest. And now through friendship with him, through what he's done, we can enter into the most holy place, which is shocking. To anyone who would have read this in the first century absolutely shocking i get to play the part of the high priest i get to enter in into the presence of god because of jesus he's better than the angels says says hebrews he's the moses who never grows tired of shepherding the flock he's the prophet whose truth never lacks love he's the king whose mercy to his people never ends and he's the king who dies for his people he's the high priest who weeps as he offers sacrifices and prayers to God to not let our prideful, self-righteous, ungrateful hearts keep his love away. He's the sacrifice that ensures no matter how much you curse, how much you doubt, how much you renounce, how tired or how little you believe, how weak you are, how much you judge others and envy them, how little you deserve your life and you don't even know it. He's the sacrifice that ensures that God's love will never, ever, ever, ever let go of you. Ever. Not because you deserve it. Because Jesus paid your wage for it. See, and this is the main point. This is the main point, this is the main reason why we in the West are leaving Christianity, leaving the faith, renouncing it all. I still remember one of the first times I felt like an adult. <laughs> I, uh, I was out to eat with Anna and another couple, and maybe you've had this feeling before, it felt so good. And uh, the waiter brought, brought our bill, and uh, I did one of these. I said, I got this. You know what I'm talking about? And I felt like an adult. And not one of those where you're like, I definitely had these moments, you probably have too, where the waiter brings the bill and you reach out just to see your part, but then the other person goes, oh no, you don't have to do that. And you're like, inside, I wasn't, (laughs) but I guess I am now, not one of those. I'm talking about waiter brings the bill, I say, I got this and I know I can pay for it. I know I can cover it and still be okay. I felt like an adult that moment. I could take care of myself. I could take care of myself. See, friends, what's behind all these forces that we're citing for why people are leaving the faith? What's the impulse behind all of them, behind this age of information, this this ability to choose to not research things and just go home to our own echo chambers, this ability to be aware of other Christians' lifestyle and to judge them mercilessly for it, To take for granted my own free choice, my own self actualization, my own free expression. What's behind this force that allows me to say, the church is not relevant to me anymore? Do you know what's behind it? I can pay my own wage. I got this. I can take care of myself. We've forgotten what it's like to feel so hungry. We've forgotten what it's like to come face to face with the crap in our hearts, really come face to face with it, and realize that we can't get rid of it. I prayed about it earlier, That totally was just spontaneous, but you know the scene from Macbeth, where Lady Macbeth, after they c- commit the murder, and she has the, the blood, the spot, and she can't get it off. We've forgotten what it's like to feel this, and be like, well, I can't get it off, oh wretched spot. I think that's the line, I don't remember but it's like, I can't get it off. We've forgotten what it's like to realize I cannot pay my wage. And Brother Lawrence sees it. He understands. Rome, when they say, give us your riches, they want riches of silver and gold because those are true riches, right? Those are the riches of those in power, those who can pay their wage. Rome can take care of themselves. And Lawrence is saying, no, 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 you don't understand true riches. You don't understand the riches of Jesus, the riches of the kingdom. Because true riches are in the realization that we cannot pay anything. We deserve nothing, nothing. You deserve to wake up this morning. No, you don't. You didn't create yourself. You didn't will yourself into consciousness. Everything we have, every day, every moment, is sheer gift. We deserve nothing in the true riches of the churches. We get everything. We deserve so little. We deserve the worst of the worst. And we get a banquet set and invited to the table. We get adopted into the family because of Jesus. The true riches are in the mercy of Jesus even as we live so ungratefully, we get to live knowing that our ungratefulness does not disqualify us from God's love. And when we die, we know that God's love chases us still. See, and that's why Lawrence, that's the brilliance of Lawrence, where he brings these mutilated people before the prefect. Because these people, with mutilated bodies and impoverished lives, they've known every moment they can't pay their debts. They're reminded of it. They wake up, and they're like, Gosh, why couldn't I have just died? Everywhere they go, they're reminded they can't pay their debts. They can't say, I got this. No, they don't. They're judged by everyone. They're looked down upon. They're gawked at. They can't get a job because they're blind and mutilated. No man or woman wants them as a spouse. No one invites them to eat. No one is their friends. They're dead even while they live. And Lawrence says they understand true riches. Why? Because in their death, even while they live, which is all of us, even though we think we can pay for ourselves, they hear about this king named Jesus. This God who is love in the flesh, who comes to them and gives up his kingly glory, gives up all his riches, what they would say are real riches, who comes to them and he comes exclusively to be their friend, their friend, to to eat with them, To kiss them, to hug them, to tell them they are so worthy. They're so worthy to be alive. When the world says you get one star, this king named Jesus, this God says, no, no, no. no. Don't look at them. You get five, and you'll never lose that. You get five. He paid their debt to be their friend. They see him because he paid their debt. They were desperate, and he was there. Jesus is the true high priest, and he's the real sacrifice, the final sacrifice. But unlike them, we, we think we can pay our debts. We think we can pay our wages. Therefore, it doesn't really mean anything to us. So we can't see Jesus for who he is anymore. And the hope we have, friends, when it says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful, the hope we have has nothing to do with whether we live as a good follower of Jesus or not. We actually won't. That's not our hope. Whether your heart will ever stop coveting or lusting or whatever, it's gonna be an uphill battle. But that doesn't matter, that's not your hope, is where your heart ends up. Whether you'll beat that addiction or not, whether you'll ever feel happy or not, whether you'll ever get rid of pride at a level, that doesn't matter. That's not your hope. Your hope has everything. 100% to do with how perfect Jesus is, which is why we are so different from every other person on the face of the planet. The hope that allows me to say, I deserve to live. Be like, why? Tell me why you deserve to live. Because Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Because he says I deserve to live. My hope is entirely locked up in him. And the more I look at him, the more I realize the debt that I could not pay. That I could never say, I got this, no, ever. The bill is actually far crazier than I imagined. I can't pay it. If I'm gonna get out of this restaurant alive, someone else is gonna have to pay the bill. The hope that I have is that Jesus has paid that bill. Which is why all the reasons right now that the world is giving for why they're no longer Christian for why they're renouncing the faith, I'm just gonna be honest, are idiotic reasons. They're dumb. I'm not saying you're dumb, I'm just saying your reasons are dumb. That's what I'm saying. Because they're not about Jesus. They're about Christianity, or they're about uh, how Christianity evolved, or they're about other Christians, or they're about the cultural moments and values which you don't even know you value. They're not about Jesus. So far as I know, there's only one person that I've read, I'm sure there are more, But there's one person I know who has looked, not Christianity in the face, but Christ in the face, and said, I hate him. There's one person, and it's this guy, Frederick Nietzsche. He's the only one I know. If you ever want to have good reasons for rejecting Jesus, not Christianity, but Jesus, he's the only one I know of. And if you know of others, come tell me. I'd love to read them. He's the only one I know who has looked Jesus in the face and despised him. And here's why. Because when he looked Jesus in the face, he saw an ethics of compassion, which is true. He saw that the church is fundamentally built off of showing compassion and grace for those who cannot pay their debts, any of them. At the core is a God who paid their debts therefore they show grace to everyone." And he hated that weakness. He hated it. He hated the gospel for, this is a British guy who wrote this and I love it, its enfeebling solicitude for the weak. He hated the gospel for its enfeebling care for the weak, the outcast, the infirm, and the diseased. He hated the God who came to the weakest of the world. He hated the God who came as the weakest of the world, and started this kingdom there in the weakness. He hated the kingdom of weakness. And that's what we are. We are the kingdom that says, I have nothing together. Look at my, my eye sockets, look at my mutilated body, look at my heart, which is so, it can't get it together. I have nothing. And behold, the riches of the church. Why? Because of me? No. Because God has entered my weakness and loved me here. He has paid the debt there. He hated the kingdom of weakness. But the kingdom of weakness helps us most clearly see how little we can pay our debts, how little we deserve, and helps inspire, hopefully, a, a gratitude in us, which is the rightful response to even being alive in this world. Jesus is still paying your wage because you're still racking up debts. (laughs) And will. You'll leave today and you'll curse again tomorrow because that's your natural product. You're a natural product of your environment. And Jesus' sacrifice still holds. His love still holds. No matter what you decide or don't decide, it still holds. So let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And what is our hope? That he who promised is faithful. I'm not faithful. I'm very faithless. I'm very faithless. But he, Jesus, he who promised, is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. Today's sermon may have felt a little harsh. You don't have to raise your hands. I'm sure it did. Well, there's a reason. When it says, let us spur one another on, the Greek word for that is paraxusmas, which is where we get our English word, a paroxysm. If you don't know what a paroxysm is, it's a violent expression of rage. It's a violent expression of rage that wakes you up. So consider this sermon your paroxysm, your violent expression to humble you, to say you deserve nothing. I know what's in your hearts, and I know how ugly it is because it's in mine too. Look at Jesus. Remember what it was like when you could not pay for your meal. I want to invite the band back up at this point and end here. The reason why we don't give up meeting together, the reason why we come to the table and we don't leave. There's a guy named C.S. Lewis. You may have heard of him. He was a a very smart guy. He was a professor um, at Cambridge and Oxford, I think. And uh, he became a Christian later in life. And he talked about when he first started going to church. And he hated going to church. And the reason why, is this funny line. He goes, uh, he hated singing songs, hymns, because he said they were fifth-rate poetry set to sixth-rate music. (laughs) He hated it. He hated all of it. It was so boring. The sermon was so boring boring. She goes, well, why did I go to church? Because I go to church and I was just, I was in my self-righteousness, my, my, um, my smugness. And then I'd look across the aisle and I'd see the local fisherman who just got off of a night shift. And he's still in his fishing boots that are covered in mud. And he is singing to God at the top of his lungs, And Lewis goes, in that moment, I realized I wasn't worth two pennies to wipe the mud off of his boots. I wasn't worth that. And that's why I kept coming. Because that fisherman reminded me I deserve nothing. And I get everything. Stay at the table to remind us of the debt we cannot pay. What's the word we've been talking about today? Repentance. Repentance at its core is open hands, saying, God, I I didn't deserve this day at all. I won't deserve tomorrow. I certainly, when I look at you, I don't deserve what you did. Giving up friendship with God to come to this broken and dirty earth, this violent and fearful and hateful earth, and to receive upon yourself the violence of all of us. That's who you are, Jesus? to enter into that weakness and to say, I will receive it and love you there. The repentance that says, I can't pay for any of this. The hunger and the desperation to recall our weaknesses while looking at his weakness. Your ability to doubt at all is itself a gift from God. So we're going to spend some time repenting of believing for a second that we deserve any of this incredible life we have and the life to come, the life that just keeps getting better and better as we learn what it means to be friends with Jesus. We look at Jesus, the only one who could ever look at us and say, I'm better than you. And instead what he says when he looks at us is, I forgive you. I love you, will you be my friend?" And when that takes shape and form in us, just like Lawrence, we can point to the cross, we can point to the dirtiness in ourselves and say, Behold the riches of the church, take them. For the love of God, O world, please take them. This, this is the power right here, the dirtiness that god has loved and entered in behold it and take it will you pray with me lord we know that every move of your spirit starts with repentance starts when a people get on their knees and say they're sorry ask for forgiveness of all the ways that they have forgotten how to look at you to see you for who you really are and who are you God you are the king of weakness you're the king who saves not by a sword but by a towel and a basin of water you're the king who saves not with the scepter but with the cross you save through your own weakness and that's the appropriate response. We enter into this family by acknowledging our weakness. That we will never get our lives together or get our hearts together. And that, that's actually okay. Because our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in the King, Jesus. So as we sing this song of response, Jesus, would you bring to mind for every heart in this room what it is you're asking them to repent of? a thought, a narrative about themselves, something they've done that they've never been able to forgive, lack of gratitude, whatever it is. Would you inspire within us as a people a desperation and the hunger that remembers that we cannot pay for our meal? If we're gonna eat it all at this table, you're gonna have to pay for it. And oh my gosh, you do. Help us to see you again, Lord. Help us to see the king of weakness that I gladly, in all that ridiculousness, this king of weakness that I choose to follow with the rest of my life, I will be weak alongside you. I will be foolish alongside you. Will you stand now? And as we sing this song of response, would you let God bring to mind perhaps what he might want to say to us as a people? To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Weiss at lizweiss.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week.